the book of 1 John. It's where we have been for a couple of months. It's where we're going to be for a number of weeks still to come. We've been working our way through this wonderful letter that John, one of the beloved disciples of Jesus, arguably the beloved disciple, the one who knew Jesus best, who in his life Jesus may have known the best and maybe loved the most, if that's even possible. Uh, John, this beloved disciple um, who has known Jesus, been loved by Jesus, served Jesus, suffered for his faith in Jesus, is now back in the land of of Ephesus writing and pastoring uh, the church in that region. He's writing this letter to a church not too dissimilar from ours, uh, seeking to encourage their faith and to reassure their faith in what they had heard and believed about Jesus. And so what John has already told us is that he is teaching us nothing new, but he's just teaching what he had heard from Jesus himself. And he's just reinforcing what he has taught this church that Jesus had taught him that they might understand it more clearly and treasure it more deeply. So this morning what I want to do is start off by going back to something that Jesus taught the disciples. That John would have definitely learned from Jesus and that John has now taken and he's been teaching this church. And I want you to hear the echoes of Jesus' teaching and what we've already heard in John, and I want this same teaching to kind of set the stage for what John's going to say this morning. So you don't have to go there, but you can write down Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read this to you, and then we'll flip over to 1 John, and we'll see some of these echoes of Jesus in John's letter. Matthew chapter 7, we'll start it this way, verse 15. This is Jesus teaching. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but Inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, does this sound a little familiar to something that John has already taught the church? That there are going to be people who have been with you, but ultimately, John has said, are not of you or from you, and those people are seeking to deceive you. There's deception afoot amongst God's people. And that deception is best understood not simply by what they say, but you can bear the truthfulness of that teaching out by how it impacts their life. That a tree bears a fruit that resembles the roots of that tree. This is what John's been saying already, but listen to what Jesus keeps saying. I want you to hear some more echoes. Jesus goes on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, make a note in your mind with that word lawlessness. John's going to talk about that this morning. But isn't this something that he's already pointed out that we looked at last week? That frightful truth that you can say all the right things, quote all the right verses, point all the right theology, and be a part of all the right things, yet never have truly been transformed in your heart. Isn't this what John warned the church about last week when he warned them of the temptation of these false prophets who knew all the right things to say and had been a part of all the things the church had been a part of, who had done the same things, but yet their life, the fruit of their life, was portraying the reality of what they really were. Jesus continues on, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them So everyone who listens to this truth of Jesus, this teaching of Jesus, this instruction of Jesus and takes it in and believes it and lives in light of it and applies it to their life, that it begins to direct the affairs of their heart and of their life. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, he does not do them does not treasure them, does not delight in them, does not allow them to conform the affections, the desires, the attitudes, and then the behaviors of their life. It would be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Flip over to 1 John, if you're already there. 
John's writing to the church that is dealing with the very thing that Jesus talked about. Workers of lawlessness, false prophets had come into the church, were deceiving the church. The church was worried. The church was nervous. They had known them. They had spent time with them. They had shared communion with them. They probably done sleepovers with each other's kids. And now they were gone. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? Their confidence was being undermined. Their confidence was being eroded and John's writing to them. He's teaching them nothing new. He's just teaching them what Jesus had taught them. And he's unpacking it for them. Now listen to what he says this morning. I want you to hear the echoes of what Jesus had taught John then. And I want you to hear what he's saying to the church here and what he's saying to us now. John, 1 John chapter 2, we'll start in verse 28. I'm going to read all the way through and then we'll pick it apart. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, he's talking about Jesus, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, when we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that reveals to us who you are and it reveals to us your son. It reveals to us your grace. It reveals to us your mercy. It reveals to us your holiness. It reveals to us your love. And in that, it reveals to us who we are and how desperately we need you. And I would ask that your spirit would make your grace and your truth alive to our hearts this morning that we might respond in faith in faith to the mercy and the grace that you've shown us in the face of your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name for your glory and our joy. Amen. Now, what we're gonna do is a little bit, that's not different, but I wanna tell you what we're gonna do and how we're gonna do it this morning because typically we like to go verse by verse and work our way through, but something if you've been around since this first John series has started, we told you is that John's pretty circular. He's like going up a spiral staircase. You know, the commentators will say, you go up a spiral staircase and there's a window on the wall and you see the window like four or five times all from different angles and and that's what John's doing. So this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna take what we just read from 1 John and I wanna pick it apart a bit like a puzzle and then put it back together for you if it's at all possible in a linear fashion which is hard for me because I'm not linear. I like John. I like circling around things and I like repetition. But I'm gonna try to pick it apart and make it linear so that you can see the the force and the weight of what he's trying to argue. But that's so, I would hope, by God's grace, you would see the glory and the majesty of the hope and the confidence that he's trying to communicate to the church. And so in order to do that, we're actually gonna start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. So we're gonna bounce around and I wanna stack this up and, and hopefully it will, it will make your heart sing when it's all done. So 1 John chapter three, verse seven, this is what John says. Little children, let no one deceive you. Last week we talked about the deceivers, the temptation that would come to, to follow and to believe in, in false teaching about Christ. And this morning he's gonna to turn to the fruit of that teaching. He's gonna warn them not to be tempted by the false teaching and he's gonna show show them the validity of what they're living and what they're believing by the life that they actually live. And and here's what he says. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't be deceived. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Here's the fruit of the deception that I'm trying to warn you about. This is what it all boils down to. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. These people had come back into this church and had begun to tell their their friends, those who they had done life with, they had begun to affirm things about Jesus they had all believed, but then said, we've learned something a little bit more. As much as we've treasured and delighted in this person of Jesus and this grace of God, it's even better. It's so great. It's so great. It makes us so new and so clean that what we do now in this life doesn't matter anymore. Our soul is pure. And therefore, what we do in our life with our, with our body, with our, with our lives that God has given us doesn't really matter. You're free. This is what God's done for you. And John's been showing them and the error of this way over and over and over again. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. Those who practice righteousness are righteous. You cannot be one who claims to be righteous before God because of faith in Christ. You cannot claim to walk around saying, I know God, I love God, I'm down with Jesus, but it has no bearing on how I actually live my life. To to walk around day in and day out and not be affected in thought and in action, in motivation, in affection by the grace of God that you have claimed to receive and live in, John says it's antithetical to grace itself. The same grace that you have received that saves you is a grace that works in you. It's the same grace that you have received that saves you is the same grace that changes you. John is not saying that as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, that you will live your life day in and day out, every single moment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week without sin. He's already said that's an impossibility. That's not what he's saying here. He said, if you actually believe that, the way these guys are talking in some sense, you're a liar, you're self-deceived. And worse, you call God a liar. John's not saying that you need to be righteous and live in righteousness so that God will love you and God will accept you. He's saying just the opposite. God loves you, God saves you, God redeems you, God makes you alive. And in response to the work of God and the grace of God in your life, you then live differently. This is what John is after. He's gonna, he's gonna do it, and let me give you two big headings that he's gonna work out from under, and you can kind of hopefully make sense of these. What John is arguing and what he's gonna try to unpack is that your life, your life, day in and day out, the affections of your heart, the attitudes of your heart, the thoughts of your mind that give, that give compulsion to your behaviors and your actions, your life reveals what you are. Just like Jesus had taught them, The fruit on the tree reveals what kind of tree it is. Your life reveals what you are. And more importantly, John's gonna say, your life reveals whose you are. Your life reveals what you are, and your life reveals whose you are. Chapter three, verse seven. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He's not saying if you practice righteousness, God will accept you then as righteous. No, if you practice righteousness, it's because God has made you righteous. If God has done a work of his grace in your heart and has rescued you and is transforming you, and if by faith you have truly believed on the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as he's offered it in what he calls the good news, the good news about Jesus and the reality of it is that will produce a transformation in your life. That change will produce the fruit of righteousness. The evidence of God's grace in you that has transformed you and is continuing to conform you into the image of Christ will be seen in your life, in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your motivations, and in your behavior. Your righteousness is cultivated by the Spirit of God in you and will be evidenced in your life. This is what John is trying to say. Your life will reveal what you are. He who practices righteousness is righteous. So it's not go be righteous, therefore God will love you. It's no, you can be confident. 
that God is at work in you because you delight and you desire to practice righteousness. Your life is characterized by a desire for righteousness. The character of God is what is shaping and conforming the desires and the affections of your soul. But the opposite is true as well. Remember, John loves to to give us his truth by doing comparisons and, and contrasting different things. If that's true about those who have been transformed and are being transformed by God, the opposite is true as well. Look at chapter three, verse four. John says, everyone who makes a practice now of sinning. So not those who are practicing righteousness, but everyone who makes a practice whose life is characterized by a habit of sin, by a life who's characterized by by, by a desire to be in the dark, John has said, who's comfortable in the dark, who delights in the dark, who, who finds at home in the darkness. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. There's the word that Jesus had used, right? Sin is lawlessness. So now he's comparing and contrasting practicing righteousness with practicing lawlessness, which is sin. Lawlessness is is living as though your own ideas, your own wants, your own desires, your own will is superior to God's. Lawlessness says that God may demand something, but I prefer something else. God may say this, but I prefer this. Lawlessness says that God may promise this, but what I really want is this. So I prefer this, I want this, this is what I want, no matter what God says and no matter what God promises. Lawlessness replaces God's word with your own word, your own desires, your own rule. Ultimately, lawlessness is an attitude and a characterization of of heart that that seeks to exalt your desires, your preferences, your wants, into a law unto yourself. You become in your mind and in your heart a law unto yourself. Your preferences, your desires, your authority. This is what's exalted in your heart above God's word, which reveals God's promises and exalts God's authority over all of his creation. This is the essence and the attitude of lawlessness, and this has been the problem with humanity ever since the garden. To remember, you can, you can be like God, Right? You should know good from evil. Who is he to hold that back from you? You deserve to know the truth. You deserve to know between good and evil. Who is God to keep you from that? You don't need that God telling you what to do. You don't need him limiting what you know, right? You went to college. You've got a degree. You've got the internet and books. You know what's best for you. Who are you to have him and his word telling you what to do? Who are you to have this God calling the shots in your life? Lawlessness is an attitude and a characterization of heart that ultimately exalts as superior our own will, our own wants, our own desire, our own preferences over and above the word of God. This is what lawlessness is, and it's been the problem since the very beginning. Autonomy and anarchy. What a fun balance, right? Autonomy, I'll do what I want to do. Look, you do whatever's right for you, I'll do whatever's right for me. That this is what I think is best, this is what I think I want, this is what I think I deserve. I don't really care what you do, just don't judge me for what I do and I won't judge you for what you do. We do whatever is right in our own eyes and we exalt whatever is most preferential and most desirous to us at this moment, come what may to anybody, autonomy, ultimate anarchy. We all become a law unto our own selves. This is lawlessness. You've been around it if you've ever been in a house of a person with a toddler. It's lawlessness in its own full bore flesh and blood. Who are you to tell me what to do? I want that. I'm going to go get that. And if you get in my way, you will pay. It's lawlessness. John says, little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Your life will reveal what you are. Righteous or lawless. Listen to what he says. Chapter three, verse eight. Look at the first part. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, so that's what he just talked about, right? 
a characterization, a heart of lawlessness. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the beginning, from the garden, what we just talked about, the devil has been at work to tempt humanity to disregard the word of God and the authority of God in favor of his word and his lies about God. Satan has worked from the beginning to cultivate your pride, to exalt your desires and your wants and your preferences above God's word about himself, to become a law unto yourself, to be ruled by your own wants, to be ruled by your own desires, to be ruled by your own sense of your own authority. That's the essence of lawlessness. When we believe the devil's word about reality over and against God's word about reality, his work is accomplished. And he has been at this since the beginning. And whoever makes a practice of living in a lawless way, a practice of lawlessness characterized by lawlessness, living as though God has no authority over you, living as though you actually call the shots, living as though your life is actually displaying something about you. Your life is actually revealing something about you. No matter what you say, care how much of the Bible you can quote, how many systematic theologies you can point me to, how many revivals you've been a part of, how many church events you've gone to and served at. When your life is characterized by lawlessness, when your heart and your desires are characterized by your own wants being superior to that of God's, you are demonstrating not only what you are, but whose you are. And John said you're of the devil. Strong words. God's words. Your life reveals what you are. I don't care what you say. Your life reveals what you are. Righteous or lawless. And your life reveals whose you are. The devil's or God's. John is going to remind us in this church of some of the most beautiful and encouraging truths that God has ever given us if we'll just listen. Listen to what he says. Chapter three, verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because those who do are of what? The devil. Y'all can talk back. First service was so quiet. Talk back. They're of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you look back over the page in chapter two, verse 29, the second part of verse 29, John says this. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. No one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. And everyone that practices righteousness has been born of him. John is saying as a follower of Christ, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you do not make a practice of sinning. Why? Because you have been born of God. John brings into this a idea and a, pr- a truth of the gospel that has become so common to us today, so talked about by us today, that I think it's often in most circles lost the richness of its meaning. John says a follower of Christ does not make a practice of sinning, is not characterized by lawlessness because they have been born of God. The way we would often phrase it is because you have been born again. In John's gospel, in his biography of Jesus, he tells the story of Jesus meeting one of the rulers of of Israel, one of the lead teachers of Israel named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him at night to talk to Jesus, to ask Jesus some questions. And John records that Nicodemus was known as a, as a teacher of Israel. He wasn't just a regular rabbi, a regular teacher. This guy had been elevated to a particular position of authority because of his knowledge. He had memorized the entire Old Testament. And he had not only memorized that, but he had memorized the additional 542 laws that the Pharisees had added to the law of God. And then he was conscious and diligent to live in obedience to them. This was a seriously religious dude that people respected and in his heart loved the God that he felt like he served. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and all of his religious righteousness and all of his good deeds and and all of his knowledge and he said this, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I, I say to you, church, unless you are born again, 
unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I know what it looks like on the outside. I know what you say, I know what you teach, I know what you're a part of, I know all the things you do, I know all the ways you try to live, but listen, you're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You are morally selfish. You are morally selfish and legally corrupt and guilty before God. And you deserve his wrath. Nicodemus, I don't know what it looks like. But you need to be born again. Write this down, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Just write it down. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, Peter said. According to God's great mercy, he, God, has caused, he has caused, he has initiated, and he has made possible, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is acknowledging something Jesus was teaching Nicodemus and teaching us. We need to be born again. There is an absolute, total transformation of soul and spirit that is owing to nothing that we do. We cannot make it happen. We cannot produce it in our lives and we cannot merit it with our lives. It is done to us by God. He initiates it, he causes it, and he completes it. And from that, the way we live begins to flow out. Our new birth is done totally apart from us. Being born again is something that's done to us when we cannot enter the kingdom of God without it. Our new birth is absolutely, totally in the hands of our loving and merciful and yet sovereign God. We cannot make it happen. Write this down, Ephesians chapter two, verse four. This is what the Apostle Paul says. You can go back and read it for yourself later. Paul says, God, being rich in mercy. There's that word again. Being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with, with which he loved us. So rich in mercy, and now because of God's great love with which he has loved you, which, which he has loved us. His mercy and this love is about to do something. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so even when there was no spiritual life, I don't care what it looked like on the outside, just like Nicodemus, I don't care what you knew and what you could quote and what you could obey, apart from this new birth being born of God, you are spiritually dead. And Peter and Paul, and now, not Mary, but John, are gonna remind us that from God's great mercy and rich love, something happens. And Paul says it this way, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he says, you have been saved. Being born of God, being born again is new life. And every single last one of it needs it. And there isn't a one of us that can actually earn it or merit it or in any way control or manipulate God to give it to us. Jesus was looking at Nicodemus. He was looking at us, just as Peter and Paul and John are looking at the church and looking at us and saying, it doesn't matter what you know. Don't, don't judge it by what you can memorize. Don't judge it by what you can, can quote. Don't judge it by all the things that you've been active in. Here's how you can know. There, there's something that's born anew in you. This new life. And when you are born again, when you are born of God, like John is talking about, spiritual life comes into existence where there had only been death. And when that life comes into existence where there had only been death, and John says, now because of that life, you practice righteousness. Here's why you can practice righteousness. Because you have been born again, you've been born anew, and God's seed abides in you. So it's one thing to be made alive, right? Right? It'd be great, I'm spiritually dead. So God puts the pumps on me and pops my heart open and now I'm alive and so now I just go live the same life with the same power and the same potential that I had before but it's just a new life. That's not what he says. He says you have been born again to a new life and you can practice righteousness in that new life. Here's why, because God's seed abides in you. 
Because the character and nature of God abide in you. And as that seed abides in you and the roots from that seed and that character go down and spread out, they begin to produce the new fruit of righteousness, of holiness. And on that vine hang the fruit of God's very spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those become realities in our life. If you have been... If you, if you have been saved, if you have been born again by God, how many of you have looked at your life from that point and gone, there were attitudes and there were desires, there were affections, there were pursuits, there were motivations that were so real to me, but now I'm not comfortable in them. Like, they're not comfortable anymore. It's not so much that you just don't do them anymore, but you're not comfortable with them anymore. That is the evidence of the seed of God abiding in you and producing fruit in you. It's the nature and character of God that now defines you in this new life and new birth. And the character of God has no part with darkness. God is light, John said, and light has nothing to do with darkness. There's a discomfort with that sin. There's a discomfort with lawlessness. This is the evidence of new life. This is the evidence of being born of God. This is the evidence of the seed of God taking root in your soul. It's roots going down, new fruit showing up in your life. Attitude, thought, motivation, fanning into flame, behavior, and will, and desire. This, Jesus said, is how you can know them. You know them by the fruit. Christians do not make a practice of sin. They are not characterized by darkness or lawlessness. They don't delight in it. They're not comfortable in it. Because they've been born of God, born again, and his nature abides in you, and it produces new and transforming fruit and obedience. How does that happen? How just in this little passage can we see this begin to happen in us? Write this down. I'm going to take you somewhere else and then come back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So I gave you 1 Peter 1, 3. Now here's 1 Peter 1, 23. Peter says this, since you, talking to the church, like John, talking to the church, since you have been born again, so we just talked about, right? New life, new life, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, so it's not left to yourself again, but of imperishable seed, now it's the character and nature of God that abides in you, and you've been born again, made new, made alive by the imperishable seed of God through the living and abiding word, and this word is the good news, it's the gospel that was preached to you. You have been born again, made alive. The nature and character of God has taken up residence in you and is at work in you. And that has happened as the good news about God's son has been proclaimed to you and the spirit of God has made that alive to you. What? How does John show them this in 1 John? What is the word, the living and abiding word that was preached to them? Chapter three, verse five. John is not saying, now go be righteous because you know all the right things. Go be righteous and then God will keep loving you. No, go figure out righteousness. No, he said, even the motivation for this has nothing to do with you. Chapter three, verse five. You know that he, talking about Jesus, appeared in order to take away sin. So why did Jesus come? Well, Christmas, right? Incarnation. Coming of Jesus onto this earth starts there. Why did he come? To take away sins. And in him there is no sins. Chapter 2, verse 8, the second half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You have been made alive, born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word. And this word was the good news that was preached to you, the good news about God's son who came in this life and lived the life you were created to live in his human life, a human will, completely satisfied in the person of God. And in his death, he paid the price for your lawless, sinful soul. And from God's acceptance of that sacrifice and victorious raising Jesus from the dead, he defeated the works of the devil, which are sin. Jesus' life and purpose on this earth was a search and destroy mission. And you can't think about it any other way. He came to seek and to destroy. This is what we'll celebrate at 
Easter. And he did it because in him there is no sin. Only one who knew no sin can sufficiently pay the price and be an atoning or propitiating, John has already said, we said about every week, propitiating sacrifice for our sin. Only one who knew no sin. And on the cross, Jesus Christ offered up an absolutely spotless, sinless human will. He lived on earth as a man just like you and I and was tempted in every way as you and I are to live as a law unto himself. To put his preferences and his desires above the complete and perfect will of God. Don't think he wasn't tempted by the thought of going away from the cross. Go spend some time with him in Gethsemane. Don't think that he wasn't tempted to let that cut pass. But he offered up a completely perfect sinless human will and he made that sacrifice and took upon his body the price for our absolutely lawless sinful human will and God accepted that raised him from the dead and in that resurrection Jesus completed his destruction of the works of the devil so now put it together When the good news is proclaimed, when the good news is proclaimed, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God about the Son of God and He makes it alive to your heart. And the Spirit of God gives you the faith to see the Word about the Son of God as supremely delightful and satisfying and sufficient and necessary. And when He does that, the work of new birth is done. Spirit of God, the character of God, and the imperishable seed of God go to work in your soul. As they begin to take root, new and surprising fruit begins to be seen in your life. The good news about Jesus, the the good news about the life, the death, the resurrection, and we'll see in a minute the promise of Jesus to return is God's expression of love and mercy to meet our greatest need. But here's the thing. Here's where it gets even better, and John wants you to just jump up and run. He wants you to get charismatic in a minute. It's one thing if he made us alive. I mean, that's astonishing enough in itself if we really understand that apart from him, we were dead in sin. But yet he has made us alive, so there's a new life, right? The expression of his love to make us new could be so sufficient that I could be satisfied. But John said that's not it. That's not the end of it. He didn't just make you new. He didn't just make you born of God. He didn't just make you alive now with new spiritual life. He actually makes you his own. This is what John's getting at when he says your life will reveal what you are, righteous. He's made you alive and righteous before him because of Jesus. And it will reveal whose you are. Because God in his grace doesn't just make us alive. He, he makes us his own. Okay, verse, chapter three, verse one. This is meant to, to, to make you basically jump up and have a running fit. Like if there was actually a way to convey the tone appropriate to what's probably going on in John's mind, you, he would want you to get up and run around the room. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We just have no words in our language to adequately translate what John just said. See what kind of love. There's one word in the Greek before that word love that we translate see what kind. The other place it's used in the New Testament is used in the Gospels and it's used of Jesus. If you remember the story when the disciples were on the boat and Jesus was asleep, And the storms came and they began to fear for their life. They thought it was all going to capsize. And Jesus woke up and he calmed the storm and he calmed the waves and it all died down. They looked at him and they said, what kind of man is this? That's the exact same word. It literally means of what country? They said, what kind of man is this that can do this kind of thing? What is he of? Where is he from? And John is saying, when you get this, what kind of love is this? Man, how astonishing is this? Of what country, of what origin is this love? Because it's not like mine. That he would take what was so undeserving, that was so rebellious, that was so undesirous in its sin, 
And he would make a way in his wisdom to never compromise anything about his character and person so that he could pour his love and his mercy out on us and not just make us alive and not just make us righteous, not just make us right before him, but call us his children. John wants that to take your breath away. He wants you to get up and he wants you just to run around because it's so otherworldly from us. This is the depth and the breadth of the love of God, a love so deep, a love so wide that he would look at us in our lawlessness, in our constant desire to exalt our wants and our opinions and our desires and our law as superior to him, and he would pour his love out on us and that he would send his own son to do and live a way that we could never live in our lawlessness and to die to pay the price for our lives. What kind of love does that and then calls us his own and then calls us his children? A love that took the initiative to come to us when we were so unlovely. A love that A love that was motivated by no ulterior desire. Not motivated by shame, not motivated by sorrow, not motivated by anger, but a love so other than ours set its sights on us and has loved us to the point of calling us his own. You can get a little taste of it in the human institution of adoption. And there's nothing in the child that coerces a family to take that child into the family and call them their own, to give them their name, and when that adoption is finalized legally, the rights to everything in that family. This is what God has done for us, and John wants it to take your breath away. That he has called us his children, but not just that. Look at how he ends verse one. He has called us his children, and then he says, and so we are. And verse two says, beloved, we are God's children now. It's not a future thing. It's a fact. It's the reality of who you are right now because of what God has done for you through his son and by his spirit. He actually calls you his children and not just calls you his children, but makes you his children such to the degree that you are right now. And the honest reality of it is is that the majority of us have a horrifically hard time accepting this personally. I sit down with men in their 60s who still talk about times when they were playing sports and working so hard Mom and dad sitting in the stands. They played so hard, they had nothing left in them to come off the field. And all they heard about was the mistake they made in the second quarter. So hard to, to, just, to just coerce the love. Just, what did I do? Do you love me? Was I, was I good enough? So many times you sit down with people who still talk about how hard they worked in school, how hard they studied, and they came home with a B on a test. They should have failed, and all they heard was, next time get an A. Next time, just do better. Next time, maybe you just need to try a little harder. And they've lived their lives never feeling like they were good enough to be truly accepted and truly loved by mom and dad. I listen to this day in and day out. This is not the way it is with God. This is not the way it is with God and his children. We are not supposed to be trying day in and day out to do good enough, to try hard enough, to produce enough, to persuade him to love us and accept us a little bit more today. He can never love us and accept us any more than he already does right now because of Jesus. To actually try to persuade him to love us more by doing more and being better is to pervert the grace that he's given us. John says, beloved, you are, you are. Children of God. If that wasn't enough, if that's still not enough, he says, and what we will be, because it gets better. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, we shall see him as he is. 
John says, gospel fact, you've been made new. You've been born of God. His character resides in you and is changing you. Gospel fact, he has made you through this, his children. Gospel fact and promise, one day you're gonna see him. He's going to return. This is part of the good news. We cut it off a little early sometimes. He promised to return. And when he returns, the mission that he came on will be finally finished and consummated. His kingdom will be established forever. All will be made right. And you will look in his eyes and he will look in your eyes. And when you see him, you'll be made like him. What we know of that right now, we still, like Paul said, look through a glass dimly. We're not sure, but we know this much. When we see him, when we see him, we're gonna be made like him. We're gonna be made like him. We have an absolutely new nature that is being cultivated in us and has been created in us by God's Holy Spirit. And that nature is righteous and that nature is holy. And God's Holy Spirit has been working in us ever since that point to continually conform us into the image and likeness of Christ. And we know that when we see him, when he comes, When we see him, it'll be finished and we'll be made like him. We will be with Christ for eternity and we will be transformed to be like Christ for eternity. This is part of the promise. Who we are, what we are, and whose we are. When we get that, it absolutely transforms how we live today. Our actions, our thoughts, our desires, our intentions, our motivations. And John is trying to encourage the church. He's trying to encourage you to live in the security that can only come from knowing that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that, you know where you are going. You know what you will be. You know ultimately what the future holds. All of that is grounded and secured because we know what he's done in the past. And we can live in an entirely different security and can delight in an entirely different future because we know what we are and because we know whose we are. And so John says, because of this, when you grasp this and you live in this, verse three, everyone, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who hopes in him, everyone who who looks to the return of Jesus and the glory to come then, being with him and being made like him, that hope is grounded by faith in Jesus having come already and destroyed the works of the devil and making us children of God and God's nature abiding in us, conforming us into his image and likeness. He who hopes in him purifies himself. Our life now as children of God is a life of purification. And John's already told us what that was like. He's so circular. Chapter one, verse seven, I'll just read it to you. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Corresponding verse, chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, that's what it means to walk in the light. He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin. Secure in what we are. Secure in whose we are. Compels us then to walk in the light, which means having our eyes open to the truth about God, about our sin, and about Christ. That light gets switched on when we're born again. God turns the light on in our heart so that we can see things the way that he sees things. We see God in his holiness, in his majesty. We see our hearts in their lawlessness and in our sin. And we see Christ in his beauty, in his glory as our savior. And John's already told us walking in the light does not mean sinlessness, but it means that we see sin the way that God sees it and we agree with God about it. We confess it. We turn from it. We flee from it. We hate it. 
When sin is pointed out to us by someone else, we don't stiffen up our necks in pride and and self-righteousness. We agree with God about it. And then we repent and we embrace the hope that we have because of Jesus. Because we know what we are. And ultimately, we know whose we are. When we walk in the light, when that is our frame of mind, our, our frame of living, John says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the works of the devil are destroyed in our life. And he can no longer use them to accuse us or discourage us. This is the confidence that John wants you to have. And so I'm going to end it by reading the bookend verses of this section. Verse 10, chapter 3. All of that. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Here's your confidence. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. First verse, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, here here you go. You ready? Abide in him. Abide in him. So that when he appears, because he promised to return, that's what we're looking forward to. We want to be with him. We want to be like him. That hope is animating everything about how we live now. It should be changing how we live now and what we hope in, what we pursue, what we want. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, because we want him to appear so desperately now, when he appears, you'll have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank you for your mercy and your love that made a way to pour itself out on us without compromising anything about your person so that we could experience your grace, be made new, be made alive, be made righteous, have the confidence to live a life in the light, knowing that we're your children, knowing that as we trust you and agree with you, You're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. God, help us to look forward as your children to your return, to the sending of Jesus again, that we may see him eye to eye and see him with confidence. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen.